Blog Talk Radio. We assembled here today are issuing a new decree to be heard in every city, in every foreign capital, and in every hall of power. From this day forward, a new vision will govern our land. From this day forward, it's going to be only America first. America first. Every decision on trade, on taxes, on immigration, on foreign affairs will be made to benefit American workers and American families. We must protect our borders from the ravages of other countries making our products, stealing our companies, and destroying our jobs. Protection will lead to great prosperity and strength. I will fight for you with every breath in my body, and I will never, ever let you down. I am your voice. So to every parent, who dreams for their child, and every child who dreams for their future. I say these words to you tonight. I am with you, I will fight for you, and I will win for you. To all Americans tonight, in all of our cities, and in all of our towns, I make this promise. We will make America strong again. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. Unfiltered talk and the hardcore truth. Mega, mega, mega. 
Sorry about that. Hello, everybody. This is Rory Sauter. Thank you for tuning into the Rory Sauter Show. Happy Wednesday. I hope you guys are having an amazing week. There is so much going on in the media. First and foremost, I want to take this time, like I always do, to thank all my guests, all my uh, audience, my co-hosts, my sponsors. We had great shows last week. I missed you all. I hope you all had a great weekend as well. And, uh, you know, it's a lot to catch up on, that's for sure. And uh, we have a huge show tonight. Um, We have a lot of guests coming on, which I can't wait to uh, share with everyone. Uh, Washington, D.C.-based superstar attorney, member of the Federalist Society, um, lobbyist and political strategist Justin A. Torres will be calling in shortly. We also have physics expert, scientist, meteorologist, public speaker, and best-selling author Norman Rogers will be calling in. On the phone right now, we have oil and natural gas investor, foreign policy analysis, businessman, motivational speaker, <laughs> radical Islam expert, and a contributor to Daily Caller, Clash Daily, Live Zet, Daily Surge in the Hill, Dan Perkins. How are you, sir? Good evening. I'm fine. Thank you, sir. Excellent to have you here. Uh, we will also be having, as always, joining us shortly, legislative affairs for President Ronald Reagan, international security expert, Islamic historian uh, Valerie Greenfeld will be calling in, um, and she has a best-selling book out as well. Everybody, you guys need to check that out. Check that out. It's Backyard Jihad, and uh, we will be having leaders of Blacks for Trump calling in a little later to discuss his. Uh, he has a couple theories he wants to go over with us, so that'll be exciting. Um, but first and foremost, uh, you know, I want to really deeply, you know. It's been, thank my audience, it's been an amazing year. 2018 is coming to a close, and, you know, we've done so well with the show. We're now downloadable in 19 countries. We're on over 40 different platforms online. Um, you know, as always, I, I want you guys to keep visiting our uh, news media site that we recently launched, uh, thenextgenusa.com. That's, that's thenextgenusa.com. Um, and I want to definitely, you know, keep this going because we really have a great movement, a great uh, staff, and, and, and just a great, um, you know, company and, and radio show. And things are evolving so well. So, um, and thank you to everybody again, I mean, that supports us. Without you, this would not be possible. Um, so let's get into the main topics for, for tonight. You know, the headline, obviously, that I want to get into, and I think everybody wants to discuss and is on people's minds, Dan Perkins, the wall. What are we going to do about the wall? You know, the government shutdown, uh, we don't know if it's going to happen or if it's not going to happen. The Democrats are toying. They're playing games with President Trump. Um, I believe President Trump, you know, is not scared uh, if he has to shut down the wall, uh, shut down the government for the, you know, for the wall, for the funding. Um, You know, obviously, President Trump is one of those people. That's not something he'd like to do. uh, But if there's not a proper agreement or something worked out, um, then he has no choice. I mean, because he's not going to get walked on. He's not going to get, you know, taken advantage of um well let's face the facts here your thoughts well 
that's a great way to start the show because I've been thinking about this all day. So I was driving for yeah. nine hours. Um, right. And, and, and um, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to go a different direction. Okay. Um, I wonder if Donald Trump has become a politician. Oh, Jesus. Please he's, don't say that. Please don't say that. Um, you, you want me to just hang up? No, no, I'm just keep going. <laughs> My point is that last week when he was in with Nancy and Chuck, took a very strong position. He'll take the responsibility for shutting down the government because immigration is important. The reality of the uh, a, a Rasmussen poll that was released today and a Pew poll today says that border security is the number one issue for the vast majority of Americans in this country. But uh, if if he if if there is a continuing resolution and there's no money in the budget, the continuing resolution for the wall then the Democrats have won. They have, they have successfully neutralized. And I'm telling you, you can, you, can, you can take this to the bank. If he signs an appropriations bill, look for Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi to run outside and go to the microphones and say he's no longer viable. We've destroyed him. Now, I don't know whether that's going to happen. There are stories going around about he, how he's right. going to manipulate money, but but right. in the reality, you have to you have to look at this and you say, we have the, had the possibility of a government shutdown for four and a half billion dollars out of a three point eight trillion dollar budget. If our president, and, you know, go, oh, go ahead. Our president can't get four and a half billion dollars to fund his wall, and the Democrats are saying, and, and Nancy Pelosi said before the meeting with Trump, and Chuck Schumer has said they would give him 1.6 billion dollars for border security, to put up a fence, but no money for the wall. The Democrats have 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 dug their heels in because they have the majority in the House, and the Senate passed this afternoon a stopgap continuation resolution that postpones the pushes the issue into 2019 uh, in the new Congress and let them deal with the issue that's going to the house I don't know whether the freedom caucus is going to stand up and say no we're not going to do that so there's still possibility that the house may not pass it Um, but I think that they're politicians too I mean there's a scathing article about uh, Mr. Ryan's failure of Speaker of the House and the leader of the Republican Party in the in the House, and what he was not capable of getting getting done, and um, and so I, I have grave concerns that he's talking about other possible ways to get it built, but um, he took a stand. He took a dangerous stand. And um, if he if they pass the continuing resolution, I think it's going to damage his credibility a lot. I Dan, I do want to respond to this, and we do I do want to introduce our special guest. But responding to what you just said, 
you know, you're absolutely right. When you say if this wall, you know, does not fully get completed, Trump, I mean, it, it, it's basic. It, it's, he's been defeated. I mean, he's been taken. He's been, it's been taken from him. I mean, it, but I don't see that happening. I see Trump coming okay. out of this. I do you see? I see Trump coming out strong. I see Trump coming out with some sort of deal. They're talking about today uh, several different ways uh, the wall could be funded. Um, you know, and obviously we know that there's certain parts of it that are already under construction. And you know, there's there's pro there's other stuff with prototypes that are being put into place. And, you know, I just read today that the State Department is willing to give $10 billion, with a B, to fix Mexico and Central America, but we can't get $5 billion for a wall? I mean, this, this is right. absolutely it's, – it's mind-boggling it's mind how our government and, and everything is set up at this point, and especially with prison reform. You know, I go back and forth on that. But today, you know, it was announced that in the report, I read this yesterday and the day before as well, there are child molesters getting arrested, I mean, getting released uh, with this prison reform bill. I mean, you know, there are some, some good to it, like the long-term uh, people that have been locked up for small drug offenses, but they make them, you know, this, this big deal. But, like, child molesters and stuff, I'm not okay with. I mean, I'm all for people getting second chances, uh, but there's some really nasty people getting released. But that's just, and, and it just goes to show everything with the problems in our country. We have ICE arresting six point, over 6,000 convicted murderers that are illegals and sex offenders in the same year. And we had, um, how many got deported? Uh, there was like hundreds of thousands that have been deported in the last year uh, for breaking the law and right. violating the law. And they're not making the wall the number one priority. I mean, it makes me sick. It makes me sick. They're, they'd rather do prison reform than the wall. They'd rather do all this different stuff and protect, you know, American citizens. And, you know, and funding these countries, it's ridiculous. I, you know, it just drives me nuts. Rory, can I get in? I agree. Yeah, yeah and I want, to, I want to introduce our special guest, Valerie. Uh, but I do want to introduce you because I know you just came on. Legislative Affairs for President Ronald Reagan, international security expert, Islamic historian, political activist and best-selling author, Valerie Greenfield. How are you? <laughs> Good. Thank you. That's quite a nice introduction. Um, I, I agree um, with a lot of the stuff that you guys said, and I did come on late, so I'm not sure um, if the point I'm about to make has already been made. But I think that, you know, the reason that it's not happening in the House is because, uh, you know, the Democrats want, want Trump to look bad. And they want as many people to come in as possible. So why would they want to spend money building a wall? I mean, that that makes sense to me. But you know, Trump made this made this promise, and as you said, both said he has to do it. But I don't think that he's going to be able to do it once we have the uh, the Democratic House. I think he's got to do it by the by the day after tomorrow. And I think he's got to um, find real, a way real, to do that. Yeah, and I want I want to chime in. There has been a report. Uh, the new uh, NAFTA revised agreement, I, I believe it's called the USMCA or whatever, uh, Mexico basically mm -hmm. pays for the wall uh, in that agreement with, with the debt they owe, with the way uh, the trade deal is being uh, in our return. So in that, even Trump announced that the other day. 
So, I mean, that's, and then he's talking about the defense spending could possibly pay for it. I mean, there's different variables. He can take money away from Mexico, like you're just saying about the State Department. He could take it from Guatemala and Honduras, the, the two countries that are yep. com- the people that are coming yep. through Mexico. I mean, there are many ways he could do this, and I, I believe he will find something. I just I have faith in him. He's not the kind that likes to lose. Right, and I just I don't and I don't see him losing. I I he's a perfectionist. I mean, he's a guy that does not want to look like he does not want to fail. I mean, and this guy will do whatever it takes to prevail and win. And we've seen we've seen him over and over create the impossible and do miraculous things. Um, I want to let you Agreed. respond, Dan, I'm... but then I want to introduce our special guest. Well, I think you should go to our special guest because uh, I know he's yeah, going to be absolutely. Uh, fascinating. Absolutely, let's, yeah. let's go to uh, him. Washington D Washington DC based superstar attorney, member of the Federalist Society, lobbyist and political strategist Justin A. Toros. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Uh, Torres, Torres, yeah. Torres, pleasure having you on, man. First time on the show. This is big. I uh, read your resume. Very impressive. Uh, you know, you've lived quite the life. Uh, you know, you've been around the block. You're doing very well in D.C. Uh, you're dealing with some high prolific uh, court situations and, and proceedings. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing stuff what you're involved with right now. But first and foremost, I always like to ask my guests when they first come on about themselves, about their background, about how it all started and, you know, how you got to where you are today and, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Um, oh, interesting. Well, I um, I grew up in uh, Washington D.C., um, kind of outside of Washington D.C., but I didn't I didn't actually come from a, a traditional D.C. family. Uh, my my dad was a was a contractor and did uh, roofs and decks and siding and things like that. Um, neither of my parents went to college, but I ended up um, after college coming back here and actually working as a reporter and a a magazine editor for a number of years um, until I started having kids and then decided that I was going to go to law school. So I went to law school actually with three kids at the age of 30, which is not the way I would recommend doing it, but it it worked out. Um, And since I came back from law school, I clerked um, for a, a federal appellate court judge um, came back to law. Came back to D.C. after law school, and I've worked here ever since, um, mostly at uh, large law firms doing appellate work, um, Supreme Court work, and what's called administrative law, which is the law that deals with federal agencies. So I've been doing that for, gosh, about ten or twelve years now since coming back from law school. Wow, very so very a good life. A good life. Yeah, and you, you know so. You have you have a lot of current stuff going on at the moment. I mean, you're, you know, you're making headlines. You're, you're doing uh, different appearances. Uh, you know, explain to the audience what you're currently working on. Well, it, it's one of the things we're we're involved with right now is the uh, kind of looking ahead to the 2020 census, and um, you know that the census comes every 10 years. It's ex- incredibly important in, in terms of congressional reapportionment and which states are going to gain seats in the Congress, which states are going to lose. And one of the the 
interesting dust-ups that we're seeing now is the Trump administration is attempting to or has proposed to put a new question in the census. Well, new is not exactly the right word, but to add a question to the census that is going to ask respondents, is this respondent a U.S. citizen? And sort of investigate the basis for that a little bit. You know, are you born in the U.S., born in a U.S. territory, born to American parents overseas? Or are you a naturalized citizen? If so, what year did you become naturalized? And that question is actually the target of about a dozen lawsuits now. Um, The the most uh, advanced one is in New York State, where in uh, Federal District Court in New York, where the judge is probably going to issue an opinion in the next four to six weeks. But the the claim is made that this is a a an attempt, uh, sort of a racially motivated attempt, to reduce the number of non-citizen and illegal immigrants in the United States who answer the census and get counted as part of the census, which would cause an undervote in certain state or an undercount in certain states that have high illegal populations like California, um, Arizona, New York, Illinois, Texas, Florida, places like that. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting lawsuit, um, series of lawsuits, it's probably a piece of it will go to the Supreme Court in February, and then we'll probably get the whole case go to the Supreme Court sometime before June, because the census is going to need an, an answer as to whether it can ask this question or not. But it's it's pretty fascinating, uh, pretty fascinating case, and, and probably the first in a series of cases and legal challenges we're going to see related to the census, because the census has become so politicized because of the fights over redistricting and reapportionment and things like that. Can I ask a question? Yeah, and I'm glad. Oh, go ahead, Valerie. Um, I find that so upsetting. <laughs> um, you know, it's okay to ask whether I'm a man or a woman. It's okay to ask what my religion is. It's okay to ask what my skin color is. But it's not okay to ask if I, uh, I am obeying the law. That does not so what's, what's what's interesting about this question is that it actually in in one form or another it was asked on every census in the nineteenth century um it was asked on every census that was taken in the twentieth century up through nineteen fifty and for about the past fifteen years this question this exact question in fact has been asked every year on what's called the American Community Survey, which is a survey that the census puts out annually to about one in every 40 households in the United States. And, you know, if you get the ACS, you're required by federal law to answer it, the same as the census. You're required by federal law to participate and answer the census. So this is a question that's got a a long um, vetted history. It's, um, you know, a question that's been asked before. It's only in the current climate that it becomes a political issue um, because of this allegation that it's that it is racially motivated but it's we've been asking this question for a long time without any controversy it's just now (laughs) that we have controversy and and pretty serious controversy i mean the um the the secretary of commerce uh, the judge in new york permitted the secretary of commerce or ordered the secretary of commerce to sit for a deposition 
in this case, which is, you know, if you know anything about it, administrative law is really extraordinary. That just that never happens. That cabinet secretaries are required to be deposed so that, uh, you know, on the theory that there's some kind of hidden racial motivation to their actions. If there's no evidence of racial motivation in the official rationale that's provided uh, for the agency action. So it's a, it's a really extraordinary case. And um, I think one that's going to be, it's going to go to the Supreme court at least once and probably twice. um, And we'll, generate a lot of interest, I think. Is this setting precedent that you're guilty before proven innocent? I mean, they're doing the same thing with Trump. You know, they're fishing for something to get him on, you know, and, and there's nothing there, but that doesn't stop the the um, the continual search. It sounds like the same thing well, here that what you're talking about. I, I, I think that what you're, what you're seeing, and this is sort of a, a piece of a larger trend that you're seeing in the past two years. You know, as I said, I do a lot of what's called administrative law, and that's in administrative law, there's this principle, this kind of bedrock principle. You learn it, you know, day one of your admin law class in law school, that if when when a federal agency decides on a policy, if the policy isn't facially illegal, you know, isn't impermissible under governing law, if it decides on a policy and it gives a reasoned explanation for the policy, meaning it can show that the policy choice that it made isn't arbitrary, um, then it gets deference from the courts. The courts don't look kind of under the under the hood, you know, to, to try to figure out what was the motivation and what was the political um, motivation, what was the political rationale, were there other pressures, things like that. The court doesn't look at that. Right. And there's a really important reason why the court doesn't look at that, because courts don't make policy. Policymaking bodies make policy. And if courts get into the job of making policy, then you've got a real fundamental separation of powers issue. And that that so that is a, a, a rationale that that, you know, for better or worse, is sort of a guiding fundamental principle of administrative law. I, I think in the past two years, it's very clear that you've seen the Trump administration's policies, even when a reasoned explanation is given for them, you've got courts kind of looking under the hood and deciding that there's some unstated impulse or rationale or motivation that is illegitimate. And so I'm going to I'm going to kind of get beyond the, the, the explanation and try to understand what the real story is here. And that is really a huge departure in administrative law. And it's uh, some people have begun to theorize recently who deal with administrative law issues that, that what we're developing is this kind of Trump only exception to the principle of deference to agency choices. The problem is of course, that it's, it's, you know, it's never just a one time, it's never just a one time thing, right? Uh, once courts sort of assert that power, um, they're never going to give that back up. And it creates it, it really creates huge separation of powers issues because courts are not supposed to be making policy or even reviewing policy. That's not what they do. They review legal issues, not policy choices. So it's a 
it's a really interesting development in administrative law, and it seems to be a Trump-specific phenomenon. Roy, can I ask a question? Oversight. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dan. You go. You go ahead, oh, Valerie, I'm, and then Dan. I just wanted to ask you if there's any oversight over these courts besides the higher court. Well, no, there's not. Um, not in any practical sense. That being said, the you know the the, the Supreme Court in the one really interesting case that came up, which was about the travel ban. You know, a lot of people kept saying the travel ban, you know, because the travel ban kept losing in various forms in the lower courts. And people were saying, you know, the Trump administration can't get it right, can't get it right, can't get it right. And the entire time I was saying to people, when this gets to the Supreme Court, this this is going to be reversed. Uh, It's just going to be reversed. There's no doubt about it. Like, there is clear, clear precedent um, all over the board that the president has virtually unfettered discretion to admit or deny on the basis of national security, you know, considerations. And that was what the Trump administrati- administration was asserting with the travel ban. The rationale was reasoned. Whether you agreed with it or not, it was a reasoned explanation for what they did. And, you know, I was fully prepared for the Trump administration to win at the Supreme Court, and they did, close to unanimously, because that is sort of a fundamental principle of administrative law. It was people who didn't really have a good grasp of the history of administrative law who were surprised by that outcome, right, or who thought that it was sort of, you know, who were surprised by it or thought that it was, you know, politicized or something like that. Anybody who knew administrative law knew that the Trump administration was going to win at the Supreme Court. I think the citizenship question is a very similar um, circumstance where there's a lot of precedent that says the Secretary of Commerce gets to decide the questions that get asked on the census. Congress gave him that power. It's pretty much unfettered discretion. And if he can come up with a reasoned explanation of why he wants to ask this question, he's probably going to win when it gets to the Supreme Court. The danger, of course, is that the Supreme Court takes about 80 cases a year, and that leaves a lot of cases that go unreviewed. But, you know, in terms of the Supreme Court, they've actually been, at least so far, uh, fairly consistent in hewing to these older notions of administrative law. It's the lower courts, the federal district courts, and some of the appellate courts that have really gotten off the rails in the past two years, I think. So let me let me respond to that and then ask you another question. Uh, I, I may be off on my dates, but I believe that the Supreme Court did a ruling in the Eisenhower administration uh, on the travel on a travel ban and encouraged the Congress to write specific enabling legislation to give that power directly to the president, and that that's what the court was really looking at is that the precedent set by the court in the late 1950s that the powers need to be stipulated by the Congress to the president, and they did that. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why they lost so so bad at the court. Uh, the second issue, though, I want to raise to you is I want I to get down in the, the nitty-gritty. The census has been around 
almost as long as this country's been around. And what I'm curious as somebody who is looking at this issue, is there legislation, are there laws on the books that requires the government to take a census every 10 years? And if there are, does the does the law stipulate it's up to the Secretary of Congress, Secretary of Commerce, to determine what are the appropriate questions, or are there specific things? For example, is the survey, the uh, census, only of citizens of the United States? So the the the, the there's a constitutional requirement in Article Five that a census be conducted every 10 years. Um, and the only constitutional requirement, um, the Constitution is actually pretty quiet about what the census is supposed to be like. The only constitutional requirement is that there be an actual enumeration is the, is the phrase. So you'll recall, maybe some of you would recall, like I guess it was around the 2000 census, there was a proposal to do sampling, to, to abandon the literally no house by house, nose by nose counting, and you take a sample and then extrapolate from the sample to get a population estimate. And the court mm-hmm. said, no, no, you can't do that. That's the Constitution is quite clear. Actual enumeration. You got to go and you got to count noses. Um, so that mm-hmm. that question has been laid to rest. But other than that, the Constitution gives Congress the power to define the form of the census, the form and the content. There's a statute that was passed various it was passed in various forms way back when even before there was a Secretary of Commerce, but the most recent iteration of this statute, which has been in place I think for something like a hundred years, delegates essentially unfettered discretion to the Secretary of Commerce to to define the form and content of the census. He can ask whatever he wants to ask in whatever way he thinks is appropriate so long as Congress doesn't say, no, ask it this way or you know, pass some specific legislation. That's always mm-hmm. been the practice. And so the Census Bureau, which falls under the Commerce Secretary's um, you know, authority, has you know, long had fairly wide discretion to, to – you know, figure out exactly which questions are going to be asked in which ways. And, and that's why the, the Census Bureau has a, a pretty long track record of the year or two before a census going out and doing field testing. They just did a field test in, in Rhode Island. Um, they're going to start a, field te- a couple of field tests in 2019, both with this question and without this question, the citizenship question. So that they can see, you know, what kind of results do we get and, and what, you know, are there problems in the questions and are we getting results that seem accurate and things like that. But, but they've got pretty wide discretion to ask the questions as they see fit. Um, but if Congress you, if you traditionally take, has been pretty deferential. Mm-hmm. If you take the citizenship question off the census, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not the census – um, one of the cornerstones of determining of the apportionment of the delegates to the House of Representatives, and so that it, it, it depending is, upon yeah, the census, it is the method. Okay, and it is so the if method. you're taking people who are not citizens, 
who legally should not be able to vote, then are you not skewing the census for the people that are here illegally by not asking their citizenship status? Well, the um, currently under current law, and a lot of people are surprised by this, but that this is the case under current law, apportionment is taken on the basis of total population and not total citizen population. So after 2010, after the 2010 census, a study was done um, that showed that, that estimated that in California alone, there were probably three to as many as six congressional seats um, that were awarded to California on the basis of non-citizen residents of California. Some of them may be legal. Some of them, most of them probably are not, right? But there are, they, they are counted for purposes of apportionment, and they are driving um, the awarding and the apportionment of congressional seats. So, and that's, that's mm-hmm. current law. There's a, so there's under a, the current – I'm just going to ask, under Go current law, what you were talking about, is there a penalty if you lie? It, there is a penalty for lying for this, to the census. It's, it's not permitted. Um, it is, you know, in individual cases, I, I think practically speaking, it's very difficult to um, determine if someone is lying. On an aggregate basis, the census is actually pretty good at – being able to estimate the number of um, basically wrong answers or incorrect answers, false answers, because they do have on an aggregate basis some ways of looking at objective data like Social Security registrations or um, veterans records or things like that and estimating, you know, based on these, the answer should have been X, but instead we're getting an answer that's X minus why um so why seems to be the sort of the fib factor in there they're they're actually pretty sophisticated in the way that they can do that but on an individual level while it is illegal um there's probably very little practical way of of you know of telling if someone is lying right Roy, can i ask one more question yeah go ahead dan so one of the things that I wanted, I would like you to speak about is we have a situation where um, th- this is my interpretation of why the people don't want the question. Uh, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not even a practicing attorney. I'm just a person with, a, with an opinion. I think one of the reasons why the left doesn't want this on the census is they don't want the American people to understand Actually, how many people are in this country illegally? I I, I think that that is absolutely true, um, and it is a major major, you know, some variant of that is a major plank in the the reasoning that Wilbur Ross has given for why we need this right. question. Right? There's there's an official government estimate of 11 to 12 million illegal immigrants residing in the United States. There was a Everyone who studies this question, whether no matter what side of the question you're on, right, people who want stronger immigration laws, people who want weaker ones, agree that that number is way too low. Um, there was a study that came out from Yale just a couple of weeks ago by a, a group of really well-respected statistical analysts 
all, none of whom are immigration policy experts, right? They're just statistics people. And they did a really interesting uh, analysis taking the results of the American Community Survey and trying to match that up to objective government data to, to estimate what the, what the immigrant, illegal immigrant population in the United States was. They came up with an estimate of 22 to 23 million. There are credible estimates that go as high as 35 million. So you've got a number at this point that, you know, has a range that ranges, you know, between 11 and 35 million, a 25 million person swing. It's impossible to make quality policy based on data that is so incomplete. And that's one of the reasons that the Trump administration is putting forward for asking this question is, let's get a handle on exactly how big this population is. We don't even know the answer to that question. Um, right. So it's a, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a pretty important question, I think, to, to try to sort of understand. And the census is the clearest, most, uh, you know, uh, most defensible, statistically uh, rigorous way of trying to understand that question. Thank you. And, and we, and we all know, and we all know that, you know, with, with this whole census thing, you know, the Democrats are very worried, uh, like you mentioned, Dan, about the American people getting the information on how many illegals are actually in this country. And, you know, all the, just the, just that information, you know, and we've, kn- we've known, I mean, it's not, we've known for so long that illegals have been voting in our elections, been voting for Democrats. Democrats want their votes. Democrats want their, you know, they want to use them as a political pawn a pol- for political gain. So it, I think that definitely strongly factors into it. And I think it's one of the main reasons why there's so much, hysteria from them when you bring up that subject of having that on the 2020 census. Uh, Don't you agree? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that that, that is, is clearly driving a lot of this, that there is, um, uh, you know, policy can be made. Good policy can't be made in the absence of data and, and um, and I think that there would be, I, I think there would be a lot of people who would be surprised to hear that potentially the number was as high as you know twenty two, twenty three, thirty five million. Um, Jesus, it, it seems like a, a you know a much bigger number than than yeah. than the official government estimate. Um, so right. it's and and especially when you consider the population tends to be clustered in very specific right. ways. You know, it's not right. evenly distributed. It's clustered pretty heavily in specific states. So uh, I think that that, you know, that, that, that makes a difference. Yeah. And we've seen the massive flow of immigrate, illegal immigration. And for so many years, I mean, the numbers you're putting together with this, uh, you know, with what you've come up with, I mean, have you, you know, studied around an estimate of what, how many illegals you think are living in this country? I, I I certainly think the number is higher than 11 to 12 million. I don't think that anyone thinks that estimate is credible. Um, this this Yale study that estimated it at around 22 to 23 million sounds about right. It 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 you know it's certainly it's um, 
somewhere near the midpoint of a lot of the estimates. Um, but this, what was mm-hmm. interesting about this study was the fact that, you know, these were analysts who were coming to this question without any real ideological or policy, you know, preconceptions. And if I had to guess, probably, you know, the, the personal inclinations of these, of these analysts was pretty pro-immigration. Um, yeah. But just, you know, looking at what they did, it seems very defensible to me um, that probably 22 to 23 million is, is probably about right. I would be, I'd be interested if this question gets asked, I'd be interested to see what the census results come back with. Cause I suspect it's going to confirm that Yale study in, you know, along kind of broad strokes. Now, Are there any now you, 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 you to talk about, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Are there any estimates about how much money each person may cost so if it goes up to 23 million like how much is that per year costing the taxpayers i was actually going to ask that you know, as well have you studied the, have you yeah. studied like the welfare how much of them are collecting welfare how much of our, how much of them are collecting benefits i was just going to get into that but i'm, I'm glad valerie asked it you know this this is one of the uh, this is one of the questions that's very hard to study because you can't um because you don't know kind of the baseline number that you're working from. It's, you know, it's, I think it's one of the issues that is going to become much easier to understand if we understand the size of the population that we're dealing with. Um, so it, right. you know, it, it is one of the issues that we really don't have a good handle on currently. And yeah. the reason we don't is that we don't know, you know, how big is the pie basically. Um, so yeah. it, it, it is, it, it's kind of a, that's why this population question is such a gatekeeper issue for other issues that people would be interested in, such as exactly the one you're talking about. So I don't have an answer to that yeah. question. I don't think anybody has a really credible answer to that question. We're not going to get the right. answer to that question until we start with the prior question of just how big the population is. Right. And I want to... Yeah, go ahead, Dan, and then I want to transition topics. And um, you know, okay, I want to okay. ask. I, I just, I just, I just, I'm using my crazy brain to come up with a number. What what, uh-huh. what our guest is is saying? Another way of what our guest is saying. This is really scary when you think about it. One out of almost one of every ten citizens in the United States is illegal. Oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, potentially it's, potentially it's that high. Yeah, potentially it's that high. One in every and ten. That, that's insanity. If you, you, when you, and, you know, I was just reading numbers. Uh, there were 6,000 gang members, uh, ar- illegals, arrested in 2018. There were uh, over 7,000 convicted murderers and, and sex offender illegal aliens this year deported that were in this country. There has been over 200,000 deported in the last year, just illegal aliens alone. And we're seeing some of the biggest crossings ever in history. And, you know, it's costing taxpayers all of this money. My, my you know, you're, you're a lawyer and, and, you know, I'm sure you study this quite, quite thoroughly. What are your thoughts on you know, the whole wall funding, you know, getting that, um, a, you know, a, a properly 
you know, assigned and uh, ready to go. I know parts of it are underway, parts of it have been built, but to get the full funding and, you know, you know, I just read today, and I was talking about this earlier, which is sickening. The State Department is offering to give $10 billion, with a B, to fix Mexico and Central America. And I'm like, why can't you give us $5 billion for a wall? I mean, it's, it's absolute insanity, and it's, it's ludicrous. What are your thoughts on this? Well, you know, I the so my my understanding as I was just you know looking through Politico probably about an hour ago, it seems like you know that that the Senate has approved a, a continuing resolution that has no money for a wall. Um, it sounds yep. like the, the the plan is that the House will approve this tomorrow. You right. know, it's not clear to me. Uh, just you know, uh, Paul. You know, I'm a lawyer and not not as much a politician, but, you know, my read would be that it's very difficult to make the argument that um, the wall is going to be a viable policy option if the CR gets signed without money for it. It's hard to see why uh, there's more leverage in February when uh, supposedly the CR would lapse than there would be now. Um and if not now, you know, why February, why June, why any time, right? Um, so it is pretty extraordinary that at least currently it seems like the administration has been kind of outfoxed on this on this signature issue. Um, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean politically? Are there other ways of, of trying to fund it? Are there other lines that you can fund it from? Can you fund it from remittances? I don't know, I haven't really studied the details of that, but, you know, in a sort of straight-up political fight here, the way it's looking now is that the administration lost this one, um, and I can't believe that that is good for the prospects of, of funding the wall in the spring. So, I don't know, others may disagree, but it doesn't seem like it's going to happen to me if they can't win this CR fight. I mean, what what are your what are your thoughts on a government shutdown? I mean, if if that's the the ultimate decision the president comes to, I mean, what what do you think? Well, you know, I'm 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 one of those strange people who uh, would probably welcome a government shutdown because I'm always in favor of a little less government. But but um, you know, it seems like there is no appetite for a shutdown, um, especially you know at this time of year, and um, uh, that that seems to be driving what's happening you know that there's that that right. that people would rather give up pretty significant policy issues to avoid the shutdown because of the you know all of the bad press that's going to come from a shutdown the the, yeah. the, the bureaucracy has really developed a, a pretty um well-oiled playbook for you know how to respond to a shutdown to sort of to, to produce maximum PR pressure. You know, I live in Washington, D.C. I remember during the last shutdown, um, the Park Service was uh, closing off the uh, – they attempted to close off the, the – the, the, the one thing that they did that went too far was they attempted to close off the George Washington bike trail that, that runs along the George Washington Parkway going from Alexandria up to D.C. that a lot of people use to bike into D.C. if they bike into work. That was the one thing that caused people to have a 
an absolute meltdown. But other than that, the Park Service was pretty pretty thorough about closing access to monuments and things like that, even when you didn't need to close access to it. You know, it wasn't like they right. were literally closing off access to open air monuments. Um, right. All of that is designed to put maximum pressure on lawmakers to avoid a shutdown. And, and I, I think that lawmakers got burned in that last shutdown and they don't want to go there again. I think I remember and, they had that they they closed down World War II monument, and, and veterans mm-hmm. had flown into D.C. to specifically see the monument that was made for them, and they couldn't get in. It was horrible. Right. right. I want to, you know, Dan. I I, I do want to, uh, you know, before I let before I let um, Justin go in in a few minutes, I do want to ask him about a few more topics. Do you have any? further to mention on on this uh, current uh, topic we're having right now. I don't have I don't have any more questions on that topic, but I would love to have the opportunity to ask a question. Does he see yeah, any ahead. other hot issues? Do you see any other hot issues that uh, we should be talking about? I you know I think that there is a. Um, you know, and I I kind of I kind of think of this from putting on my. Uh, lawyer had and, and, and especially the Supreme Court and, and cases that may be coming up to the Supreme Court. I, I think we're heading toward um, a, a really interesting argument in the Supreme Court with maybe not this term, but coming up soon on what's called the, the WOTUS rule. And I'm going to try to not bore you to tears here when I run through it very quickly, but this is called the Waters of the United States Rule, and this is under the Clean Water Act. The government has for years attempted to reach further and further out um, from what is called navigable waters, right, which you think you know what navigable waters means. But what the government means by navigable waters when it talks about the Clean Water Act is increasingly things like, you know, the creek that runs through your backyard, um, the dry pond that fills up two times a year, um, you know, in the in the in the empty lot behind your house, um, the the bog that is seasonally damp, right? Increasingly, the government is trying to pull those kinds of wetlands into uh, the Clean Water Act and assert federal control over those waters which are very often indistinguishable from lands that people own. The Trump administration has issued a new rule trying to roll back and kind of curtail the waters of the United States rule. It's the first effort in a, quite a long time to really draw some strict lines on the jurisdiction of the Environmental Protection Agency over these, quote-unquote, navigable waters that don't look anything like navigable waters the way you and I would think about them, right? Um, This is a big deal. It's going to be a big deal because for a variety of reasons. I mean, one is that it's going to really dramatically, if this stands, going to dramatically curtail the EPA's ability to regulate on a whole variety of topics, a whole variety of subjects over private property. Um, But it's also the first time that we're seeing a federal 
you know, a, a presidential administration really try to write into law serious limits on the commerce power, um, which has been the tool that legal progressives have used over the past hundred years to expand the regulatory power of the federal government. Um, so it's an important moment. I think it's going to come to the Supreme Court. I think it's got a good chance of being upheld, but it's going to be a titanic fight um, in the lower courts as we try to figure out what is the Trump administration's authority to roll back the waters of the United States or WOTUS rule. Um, so that's a big deal, and you should pay attention to it. Um, I also think that there's at some point here relatively soon we are going to see um, the whole issue of uh, the transgender access to bathrooms in schools and in government buildings come back up, the whole transgender bathroom issue. Um, the Supreme Court, it looked like it was going last term, and then when the Trump administration came in, they withdrew some of the administrative guidance that the courts had relied on. And so the Supreme Court punted the issue back down to the courts. It's been kicking around for a couple of months, about a year and a half now. I think within a year and a half, we're going to see that issue come back, and it's going to be a very big deal. Um, the whole, you know, bringing all these really kind of visceral and emotional questions about um, same sex privacy, uh, Title IX, um, LG, you know, gay, lesbian, transgender rights, it's going to be it's going to be a big deal. It's going to be, you know, if you'll recall Obergefell um, a couple of years ago, the gay marriage case, I think it has the potential to be more uh, cause more sort of dissent and um, controversy um, because it's getting at something much more visceral which is these kind of private spaces where sexes congregate and engage in, in private activities. So that's coming back. It, you thought it was done, but it's coming back. And, and you're, you know, you're a very, you know, I want to, I want to transition topics, you know, quickly. Um, you know, you're a very popular attorney in Washington, DC. You're doing a lot of big stuff. What I want your thoughts on, and this is, you know, breaking, you know, news obviously today and yesterday, this whole prison reform bill. I mean, I, I was kind of discussing it briefly uh, in in the episode um, earlier, and uh, you know, it's I, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm I'm all for people getting second chances and getting a, a you know to start their life over, but it's depends on who those people are. I mean, if they're arrested for drug offenses and, you know, they got a, a, a skyrocketed sentence, a ridiculous sentence, then sure. But child molesters, after I heard in the bill that they were getting released, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And it's costing U.S. taxpayers, and I quote, $346 million, to be exact. Mm -hmm. So I want your thoughts on that. I mean, I know that's the talk of D.C. right now is one of the big topics. Uh, your thoughts? Well, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been generally supportive of the bill, um, and I, I, I think it is, a, by and large, a good idea. I, you know, I, I haven't had a chance to look at the, 
kind of the last engrossed measure of the bill, so I don't know what amendments came in or came out at the last minute, and this sort of the, the proof is always in the pudding on these issues. But, you know, in broad strokes, you know, what it really does is it is it frees federal district court judges. It gives them discretion to depart from the kind of the rigid sentencing guidelines that especially apply to these three strikes and you're out cases where you can you can rack up three violent felonies. Um, that doesn't mean that the judges will depart. And, you know, my 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 hope and my expectation would be that judges would use that discretion wisely um, to really focus on the cases where, um, you know, somebody's getting kind of on, 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 on almost on technicalities is being, is being thrown a sentence that just seems, you know, very excessive. But if you had a truly violent felony, um, like the kinds of right. felonies that you're talking about, I think that most federal judges would say, I'm not going to exercise my discretion in this case to to reduce that sentence or, or walk out of that sentencing structure. Um, what it, so what it's really doing is it's, it's giving discretion back to federal court judges in sentencing. And I tend to think that that's, by and large, a good idea, right? This federal district court judges tend to be very diligent when it comes to criminal sentencing. Um, they have tend to have a fairly good pulse on the kinds of crimes that require longer sentences versus shorter sentences. And, you know, they, they are the beneficiaries almost always of a really detailed, what's called a pre-sentence investigation um, that is performed by the U.S. probation office about every federal felon. It really investigates their background and, uh, you know, their family history, criminal history, and can can give a judge a really good sense of, like, is this someone who really does need another chance, needs, you know, education, needs drug addiction counseling, needs mental health counseling, whatever. But but if they get those kind of things, can be a solid citizen, right? I'm willing right. to put that kind of discretion into the hands of judges while at the same time admitting that, you know, not every judge is going to get it right and they're going to be, they're going to be one-offs that, that make you cringe. Um, but I think in general, I want to give federal district court judges that discretion. But, you know, criminal sentencing is, is, is tough and visceral and there's always – you always have to balance the, the need for rehabilitation and the hope for rehabilitation with the need for punishment, um, so in general, I've been supported, but as I said, I haven't, I haven't, I haven't read the details yet. So maybe I'll read the details in the next couple of days and decide that I'm not. But uh, I have been supportive in the past, and I think it's probably a, a good step, a good step in, in a good direction. Wow, that was that was, you know, well said. I mean, that was a lot to take in. You're very, uh, very intelligent guy, um, Valerie. What are your thoughts? I, I, whatever he says, I'm good. I, I agree. <laughs> Dan, Dan Perkins, I know you have a response. Go ahead. Yeah, it, it, the idea that we 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 have discretion in judges. Um, I mean, I, I can't uh, I can't walk away from that story, that comment without thinking about the judge uh, who is going to be the sentencing judge for uh, General Flynn who uh, yesterday... <laughs> and I was just going to bring up said, General Flynn, yep. 
Yeah, who, who said he was he created treason, and uh, you know it, it. The thing that bothered me about what he said, again, it's not I'm not a lawyer, but he he decided he was going to interpret the law, uh, but the the things that he was saying from the bench were inappropriate for the sentences for um, lying to the FBI. So we have judges. Uh, when you have judicial discretion, uh, I think we have a court system in our country that has given so much freedom for judges to legislate from the bench uh, that the judges are when – a, when, a, when a judge in Seattle can decide what the foreign policy of the United States should be, there's a problem, and there's yep. a problem about, about the, the lawyers and the judges – uh, yeah. That that make no sense to me, and so I, yeah. I'm not as convinced that the 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 jurisprudence is prudent and and uh, just. Uh, I think there's just way too many examples of the judges being inept and uh, yeah. not realistic in in what they're doing. And, and Dan, I'm glad I, I'm glad you brought that up because you know I, I want I want to mention I think this is a very important perspective and where you were going with this uh, these judges that are making these decisions uh, for the current Trump administration were appointed by people like Barack Obama and Bill Clinton my strong opinion on this and I want to ask the lawyer what he thinks but after these people you know these presidents are gone you know with some of these appointments I mean there's so much bias it's like these judges keep up the past president's you know, terrible legacy, like Obama's legacy in some ways is still being carried on by these terrible and unconstitutional judges, and it should drive anyone in crazy. Well, uh, you know, I'll just, I'll just say this. It's one of the reasons that um, the judicial nominations are so incredibly important, um, and it is one of the things that makes me uh, really um, – really hopeful, I guess, for the future is, is that the the administration has managed to far outpace, far outpace mm-hmm. any prior yeah. administration in terms of the number of judges that it has appointed, nominated, appointed, ratified, confirmed. Um, I think we're up to 32 appellate court judges, which is just an extraordinary number. Um, yep. The track, if you keep it now, the track is that by the end of this term, the Trump administration will have appointed something like a third of all appellate court judges in the United States. Um, Right. So that legacy, no matter what else happens in this administration, that legacy will last for a very long time. And they're, you know, they tend to be young and they tend to be um, very, very uh, intelligent, qualified judges. These aren't hacks. These yeah. are these are really yeah. interesting people. So, it's you know, you may be right about the overhang of legacy of prior administrations, but uh, I, I I will tell you right now that uh, you know future uh, radio talk shows twenty five years from now are going to be you know. Uh, on the left are going to be just fulminating about these Trump judges <laughs> still hanging on. 
um, because they're yeah. young and they're very bright and they're very, very right. good, and there's a lot of them. I, right. I, I, I need to add, I'm sorry. Go ahead, i got to ask one more question. Sir, I, I, I respect you, and I, 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 I really enjoyed you being on the show and talking to you and asking you questions. But I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this question. As a member of the bar, when you hear U.S. elected senators during a hearing for confirmation of a Supreme Court judge that due process does not apply, that we are, pro- we are guilty until we are proven innocent, how do you react to that as a lawyer? Well... You know, my, my, my presumption is that um, my presumption going into the most recent round of hearings was that um, I was going to be appalled by what happened and and my expectations were wildly exceeded. Um, it, you know, it really, it was terribly, just a terrible event. And, um, you know, I think that uh, unfortunately, you know, one of the, the solutions that no one wants to talk about is, you know, why have confirmation hearings become so awful? Um, why have they gotten to the point where, you know, a lot of really qualified people, you know, on both sides of the aisle, you know, people with all kinds of disparate viewpoints look at the process now and think, forget it. I would never put myself through that, right? I would never put my family through that. Right. One right. of the ways to one of the ways to throttle all this back um, would be to return to a, a more traditional view of a limited judiciary, right? Alexander Hamilton said that the judiciary was the least dangerous branch because of, and what he meant was it, it had the most circumscribed set of powers under the constitution. If we were to hold fast to that, um, we would throttle back the, the temperature at these nomination hearings because so much wouldn't be on the line. Um, I think that would be better for nomination hearings. I'm positive we would be better for the country um, if, if, if uh, there wasn't so much on the line with every Supreme Court nomination. Um, there's a reason it's amazing to consider, right? Antonin Scalia was nominated, was confirmed, six weeks later in a 98 to zero vote. It seems like a different world that Mm -hmm. would never happen again, you know, but that's how you take the heat out of these nominations. I'd be happy to see that. Thank you. Yeah. I, and I, you know, before you, before you go, I do want to ask you, um, you know, your whole thoughts with, you know, this Mueller investigation, uh, you know, there was, I mean, all of this, I mean, with Michael Flynn, with, you know, everything going on, and there was another report out today that apparently they scrubbed Peter Strzok's text messages, uh, you know, the Mueller team did to hide evidence, and now we have uh, people like Christopher Steele, uh, who's admitting uh, to helping Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. We have all these revelations coming out, all this corruption being exposed. I mean, what, do you, what are your thoughts on this entire thing? I mean, and then James Comey, you know, basically acting like a smartass, you know, you know, deflecting, not answering questions properly, you know, thinking he's above the law. I mean, we have all of this going on. 
And as a lawyer, it must drive you insane uh, seeing some of the things that you are seeing. Yeah, it it, it does. I mean, there, there there's some really, um, you know, the, there there are some definite, some really questionable activities uh, related to the investigations um and you know it's it i mean it's it's not an area that i practice in so i, I don't uh, you know i'm not sure how much i could say that's worthwhile um except to say that i do think especially as relates to the whole question of campaign finance violations and things like that we've you know we've got a real um there's this kind of constant tension between um with with prosecutors who think that sort of the normal apparatus of politics, um, you know, grievances, glad handing, donating to campaigns, things like that, are somehow um, illegitimate and 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 criminal, and it gets to a real problem if if you expand the criminalization of political activity to. You, you you create issues where there are real First Amendment issues, where people aren't being given the opportunity to participate for fear that their participation is going to be criminal. Are we there yet with the kind of the whole Cohen piece of this? I don't know. I don't know. But um, the Supreme Court certainly in the past couple of terms has kind of taken a fairly – you know, they've kind of taken a jaundiced view of the idea that every uh, donation, every, you know, lobbyist call, um, every promise to a constituent is a crime. Um, And so I'm not entirely convinced about the the campaign finance part of this, Uh, you know, the Stormy Daniel payments and things like that. Whatever else you think about them, I'm not sure that those are necessarily – True crimes there, um, what, uh, but what know, about Michael? What about Michael Flynn's situation? Well, you know that, that I mean that was a real. I, I without having watched the sentencing hearing and, and responding only on the basis of news reports, I would say that that really struck me as a situation where the DOJ and the defense attorneys had not done their job in terms of educating the judge about why this was the right outcome. Um, Because, you know, one of the things you always have to keep in mind about federal district court judges is they do have a lot of discretion in sentencing. And, you know, the fact that the parties come in and say, we think this is the right sentence doesn't mean anything. Um, The judges don't have to listen to that at all. And so if you want that outcome, if there's that kind of agreement, you really have to educate the judge about why this is the just outcome. I got the strong impression that they had not done that kind of homework. If I had to guess, they're going to go back now and do that homework. Um, you know, I, I don't think they'll make that mistake twice. Um, but, you know, I've practiced before Judge Sullivan. He's a very sharp guy. Um, he's a very um, – he has his own way of doing things, and he knows his own mind. And yes. um, if you want to move him off something, you got to really – you got to really work to move them off of it. So they've got their work cut out for them. But I, I do think that that was. Oh, up, wait, uh, hold, hold on, hold on real quick. So you, you worked for Emmett Sullivan, the guy overseeing the Michael Flynn case right now? I, no, no, no. I've, I've never worked for him. I've, I've been involved in cases that were before him. Um, but, you know, he's 
he's been on the bench for a very long time and he he is judge Sullivan will do his do his own thing um there's no no doubt about that he will do his own thing so I want to be and careful. Is he, bear, because is he almost certainly is will he be fair? back for him again at some point? But is mm-hmm. he fair? Is like he is fair? he fair? I I think that it is. Uh, he is certainly he Judge Sullivan. He gets um, kind of on a notion, and he really he can he can be very hard to move off of it. Um, but yeah. I, I would not. Yeah, he, I mean, he's a fair judge. He will listen to arguments. He's very hardworking. He's extremely hardworking. Um, he reads. He reads everything, and uh, so you really need to make the case if you're going to make the case to him. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Yeah. And wow. I mean. Yeah. And the fact that um, you know just the whole situation. You know, from what you you know, you know, I know you practiced criminal defense in the past. You know, from what Michael Flynn, from what everything you've read, do you think there's a crime there or no? Um, well, you know, I think that, I mean, he, one of the things that was noticeable about what happened at that hearing was Judge Sullivan went back a number of times to to kind of make General Flynn admit that, yeah, I knew, you know, I knew I was doing something wrong, right? He wanted to nail that down. He wanted to nail exactly this point down. You yeah. know, in the abstract, I'm not sure. But certainly, for purposes of of what Michael Flynn was admitting there yesterday, it sure was a crime. Yeah, I mean, uh, he's he's not going to be able to walk away from that. Really, oh, Dan Perkins, you have thoughts? Go ahead. I just I, I'm I uh, wanted to thank our guests and uh, say that uh, his insights were very interesting and thought provoking. Uh, I got some ideas for some columns I want to write, so I appreciate him being on, and thank you so much, sir, for all of your time. Yeah, well, and th- Valerie, thank go you ahead. much. It's been yeah. Valerie, um, I wanted to continue just one more question about Michael Flynn because yeah. you know his life is completely ruined, and you know he had to sell his house, and his reputation is shot. And, you know, do you think that what you said that he definitely did something wrong, do you, does it rise to the level of, of what he's paid for? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, will, I will say this. He, uh, he was getting a, you know, probation and probably a fairly low level of probation is a great, a great outcome for a criminal defendant who's, who's admitted to a felony. Um, mm-hmm. I think he probably should get that. I think he probably should get that simply on the basis of his of his prior service. I mean that 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 counts and should count, right? And it should count in his mm-hmm. favor. Um, so that is an amazing outcome for him. And if he mm-hmm. if he gets that, he should he should he should take it and 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 be very pleased with it because there would you know he got a great deal from the government and. Um, Hopefully his lawyers are able to make that deal happen for him. I think that would – I personally think that would be the right outcome given these circumstances. You know, maybe I would have wanted the circumstances to be different. Um, maybe I would have, you know, approached this investigation differently. But having pleaded, getting probation, getting a little level of supervision, being able to move on with his life, that's a good outcome for him. Um, 
Uh-huh. And his lawyer should fight to make that happen. Do you see anything happening with um, some of these, like some former FBI agent, I mean, FBI, um, uh, the heads of FBI, uh, James Comey and Lisa Strzok and all the, all the Lisa Page and all these people. Mm-hmm. Do you think anything's going to happen or are we just going to walk away from it? Are they going to be accountable? I, I, I think there's probably, I mean, my guess is that there's very little appetite for, you know, any, any, uh, investigation or, or further criminal complaints in that direction. And, you know, I, mm-hmm. I, it's, it's not an, it's, that's the, that particular aspect of it is something that I followed only, but through the news. And so I, you know, I just don't know anything specific, but it, uh, my, my read is that, yeah, there's, there's, there's no appetite for anything further along those lines. Um, and, mm-hmm. and probably no, no political, uh, you know, room for that to happen, given the change in the House and and the different, you know, the the, the fact that Democrats are going to be taking over the investigatory apparatus of the House. I think there's probably uh-huh. not yeah. much that's going to happen. Okay. Very, very well said. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said. You know, and, and sir, I want to say it's been a pleasure having you on. And um, you know, I I would love to ask you if you'd answer this and really quickly. Um, before you go, uh, judges, mm-hmm. a, a judge in Texas uh, ruled Obamacare as unconstitutional. I'm sure uh, you have, you know, been thoroughly involved with this study, and we all know it is. Uh, real quick, what are mm-hmm. your thoughts on that and, and the outcome of, you know, and it's causing a lot of controversy right now, especially from the left. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting case because he, he really – Judge O'Connor really focused his opinion on Chief Justice Roberts' opinion in the Sebelius case and trying to, you know, fit it into the framework that the Chief Justice had laid out about the Obamacare mandate being a tax um, and and not severable. That was the big – that was sort of the second big issue in Sebelius that people don't remember, but it's going to become important in the second round. It's – to – to – to invalidate a law completely, you have to find some portion of it constitutionally invalid, and then you have to find that that portion of it is not severable from the law as a whole um, because judges, the, the bias is always going to be, you know, if one portion of the law is unconstitutional, I'll strike that down, but I'm not going to strike the whole law, whole law down if I don't have to. Um, what Chief Justice Roberts said in Sebelius was the Obamacare mandate is a tax and therefore is constitutional, right? And it's also uh, – it's not severable from the whole law. What just Judge O'Connor is saying is, well, now that the Obamacare mandate is not a mandate, it's not a tax, right? And therefore it's not constitutional. And you, Chief Justice Roberts, have already told us that it's not severable that means the whole law is unconstitutional and has to go down. I, I like that reasoning, and it's certainly very smart. And, you know, he's trying to work in the framework. I question whether the court is ultimately going to say that in these changed circumstances, the Obamacare mandate isn't severable from the rest of the law. I think the outcome is going to be ultimately is going to be the Obamacare mandate is in fact unconstitutional because it's no longer a mandate. It's no longer a tax. 
Um, but it's severable, so we'll strike that part of it down, but we'll let the rest of the law stand. That's what a lot of observers are saying. That being said, it's not crazy to think that this could be the death knell for Obamacare um, because, you know, Judge O'Connor was very clever about kind of fitting this into the existing framework. Um, yeah. So the court is going to have to have to work itself out of the framework to save this law. They may do it. Yeah. They may well do it, but they're going to have to do some fancy footwork to do it. Um, and, you know, and the Fifth Circuit, which is the federal appeals court that, that handles Texas, Missouri, and Louisiana, is going to weigh in before this gets to the Supreme Court. So they're going to put their own spin on the ball, too. Um, so, you know, we haven't – Connor's analysis is not going to be the, the analysis that the Supreme Court is, is finally looking at. The Fifth Circuit's going to have something to say about this as well, and that may change the arguments a little bit. Wow. Okay. Very, very well said. And, and, and thank you. I really want to thank you for coming on uh, your first time on the show. And, uh, you know, you've given some amazing insight and we've we got so many topics addressed. Um, and Todd, thank you, man. And I'll have you back soon. And wherever anybody can find you and all your, uh, you know, different uh, projects you're working on, please tell everyone. Uh, sure. Well, it's uh, you can go to our firm's website. The firm is called Share Jaffe. Um, that's S C H A E R R dash J A F F E dot com. Sharejaffe dot com. Um, we're on the web, and you can read about some of the cases that we're working on there. It's a good group of people. Very nice, man. Excellent. And uh, what what is your biggest case you're working on right now? Um, uh, we are uh, working on uh, – we're uh, helping to defend um, the state of Louisiana, and uh, the state of Louisiana in 2016 passed a series of laws um, regulating uh, abortion, uh, regulating – you know, requiring a 72-hour waiting notice, um, requiring uh, various kinds of informed consent laws and things like that, and uh, – we are defending those laws on behalf. We've been hired by the state of Louisiana to help defend those laws against the challenge. So that takes a big chunk of my time right now. Wow. Very impressive. Very impressive. Well, you know, uh, Justin, thank you. And uh, like I said, I'll have you back soon, man. Uh, have a great night, man. Cheers. All right. Thanks. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. I do want to welcome my next special guest, very popular guy, very smart guy, physics expert, scientist, meteorologist, public speaker, and best-selling author, Norman Rogers. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm happy to be here. It's great to have you here. And you have quite the background. Uh, education, you have a BA in physics from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, you also have a master's in physics from there. You went to the University of Hawaii, University of Hawaii Norman Business. Wait, University of Hawaii. Wait, I'm trying to read your your uh, bio, but I think there's some uh, mix-ups here. Uh, you got your BA at Berkeley, and then and my master's at master's the University of Hawaii. Yeah, that's what I, I was just going to correct that. And uh, you know, you've worked for IBM, you've worked for Hewlett Packard, Genrad. Uh, and you've done a lot of consulting. Uh, you've been a, involved with a lot of different organizations. Uh, you're a board member of the CO2 Coalition, the National Association of Scholars. Uh, you're also a policy advisor for the Heartland Institute. Uh, 
a member of Geophysical Union and the American uh, Meteorological uh, Society. That's all correct. Yeah. So, man, you've lived uh, quite the life. Um, you have a, an amazing background, like I said. Uh, and for, you know, it's your first time on the show. And let, what I like to do with all my guests is tell us how it all started, man. Tell us, you know, uh, your story, uh, your your upbringing, your career. You know, where you're currently at. I mean, there's there's so much going on. Well, I, I spent most of my life in California. I was an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, and I had a company, and I sold it in uh, 2006 and retired. Got interested in global warming. I spent a lot of time studying that, and then I went from that into green energy. And, uh, of course, I wrote a book called Dumb Energy, which is all about wind and solar. Yep, and that's, and that's, that's, and that's the new book that just came out that you, you have out. Yes, it is, huh? And basically, I say that uh, wind and solar are totally dumb because they're seventy percent subsidized by the government, and there's really just no point to it because all the wind and solar have to have backup plants. So you could just dynamite the wind and solar plants and run off the backup plants. It's very expensive, and it's uh, it's kind of a big con job uh, that that. Uh, has been put on by the people who are conning us about global warming and uh, conning us about green energy. And we're seeing, you know, for instance, I mean, we're seeing how all of these people, especially on the left, obsess over climate change and global warming. And it's, you know, let's face it, and you'll agree with this, it's the greatest scam ever created. Al Gore created the greatest scam perhaps one of the greatest, uh, that made him filthy rich, made it one of the main talking points, made it this huge, uh, dramatic, frantic uh, narrative. I mean, I mean it's, it's insane. I mean, the way it's transpired and the way people look at it as a life or death, this is absurd. It's beyond absurdity because let's face it, before Al Gore ever started talking about this stuff, it wasn't really as much of a trending, uh, frantic, uh, hysteria topic. Uh, you know yeah, what I mean? There's a bunch of special interests that are benefiting from this, and they pretty well control the narrative so that uh, a lot of people really believe in it. It's it's not just Al Gore, but uh, it's, it's a whole science establishment that's kind of behind it. Uh, the science establishment has discovered that uh, if you predict a big disaster, it, it's very helpful in terms of getting money from the government and getting attention. And so they have a strong tendency to do that. The, the global warming is a very weak science. You know, there's five or six things that can affect climate. Carbon dioxide is only one and probably not that significant. Uh, and uh, they've plugged all this into big computer programs and they make... Uh, predictions about the future, uh, but their predictions are constantly wrong. And uh, every time the, their predictions come out wrong, they change them and and just double down. Yeah, and, you know, it, it's one of those things, and when you see a Democrat politician say the number one threat to our earth, to, our, to, to this country, is global warming, climate change, I, you know, part of me 
at least most of me thinks it's for attention and they know their sheep are going to react to it. And another part of me actually thinks, uh, and they actually don't believe it, but then another part of me thinks these politicians actually believe that and are that dumb. Well, what are people your believe things that, I think people believe things that are in their self-interest. Uh, the Democrat politicians have to deal with a fair, fairly significant uh, a group of voters that really believes in this stuff, members of the Sierra Club and Greenpeace, and they don't want to alienate those voters. So long as there's not a lot of pushback, uh, they'll keep preaching global yeah. warming and uh, climate change. But by and, the way, it's yeah. it, it used to be called global warming. Now it's called climate change. The reason being that the global globe stopped warming. And, and debunking this into, yeah, 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 and debunking the whole, you know, we've seen the the crazy uh, leftist rage from Trump exiting the Paris Climate Agreement. There was absolutely nothing in that agreement that benefited uh, our country. Or, or, I mean, it's useless even for science. Even for, there's nothing there. It does nothing except. Uh, make those governments and those uh, politicians a bunch more money. Yeah, the whole the whole point of the Paris Agreement was that uh, they, the, the so-called poor countries wanted uh, the so-called rich countries, namely us, to give them money. And uh, that that's really what it boils down to. It wasn't really going to cut back on CO2 emissions. You know, China's far and away the biggest emitter of CO2, and Oh, they were going to cut back maybe in 30 or 40 years. It's just a paper tiger, the whole agreement. And really the point was to to milk us and maybe a few other rich countries. Yeah, and, and can you, you – can, I, I know Valerie has thoughts, and I, I have so many questions for you about this. You know, you saw this science and all this different, you know, stuff about – you know, debunking some of the left, the, the left's claims. I mean, it's ridiculous with some of the things they come up with. But uh, Valerie, go ahead. Thanks, Rory. Um, I'm wondering. You know, I was on a panel a couple weeks ago. Um, the biggest talk was, oh, well, all the scientists have all these facts. How can you dispute the facts if you're not a scientist? Well, how do you know? And so I guess my question is, what? how do I make a comeback to a question like that if everybody agrees and I'm just the only stupid one around that says this doesn't seem right? Like what would, yeah, be my, well, what would what should I say to these people? Well, the mistake is to think that scientists are somehow superhuman and they're very objective. <laughs> they're, special, they're a special interest <laughs> and they're on the federal payroll. So, you know, President Eisenhower said this in his farewell speech way back in 1961, that was the speech when he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. He also said, beware of the scientific-technical complex, because he he was afraid that if science was supported by federal money, science would become political, and they would distort the science in order to change government policy and make more money flow toward them. And that's exactly what has happened. And yeah. all the scientists don't agree. There are plenty of scientists who disagree. And they they have to be pretty brave to do that because one of the worst things you can do as a scientist is get between the money coming from Washington and the science establishment. Ah, good point. And you see, you know, you see all these uh, liberal organizations in the in the, the Democrat Party trying to put their focus and uh, on solar 
And we all know, at least on the right, I mean, solar, it doesn't work. It, it just doesn't work. Can you please explain that to the audience, that they, they're trying to rely on the sun for certain things, for energy, and it's just it's complete hogwash. I mean, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist, and I even know that. I mean, and, and the fact that, like you said, now it makes sense. They're on the federal payroll, some of these scientists, hence why they say and admit to this garbage. Yeah, I mean, the first thing, to go, of course, to know about solar, it doesn't work at night. It doesn't work if it's cloudy. Uh, it's yeah. erratic energy, and you have to have a backup plant, and the backup plant's usually a natural gas plant. And sometimes they suggest that, well, we'll get batteries and store the solar energy to tide us over over the night or when it's cloudy. But batteries are are too expensive. They're not remotely practical. They're, they're just maybe a factor of 10 too expensive to use for that purpose. So uh, it, it, it's just a, a con job. And, and the people who are self-interested in this, of course, are the manufacturers of the equipment, the scientists. Uh, the uh, politicians, uh, and they have con- convinced many states to pass laws saying they have to have a certain amount of renewable energy. Uh, they have uh, one thing I should tell you is that utilities don't really are not really bothered by building useless things. If you let them, the utilities be quite happy to build absolutely useless wind and solar installations because it becomes a part of their rate base. Their, their allowed profits are determined by how much money they've invested in equipment. So, unfortunately, they're, they're just only too happy to build wind farms that uh, are useless, you know, that, that only, only uh, cut down a little bit of the fuel consumption in the backup plants and are not economical. Rooftop solar is an excellent example of something that's a big waste of money, even though the the homeowner may or may not actually profit from having rooftop solar. Everyone else is paying to support it. It's about ninety percent subsidized. Yeah, and 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 you and you look at you look at all of you know what what the what the left wants in terms of they want to get rid of coal. They want to get. They want to reduce that. They're not in favor of that, you know. And, and what are your thoughts on that? I mean, coal is one of our biggest, uh, you know, produce. I mean, it's one of the biggest things we have, and it's very important. And the fact that they're pushing that down people's throats is disgusting. Yeah, this is the Sierra Club. They have a program called Beyond Coal. They have a systematic yeah. plan to to close down all the coal in the United States. And they do it by scaring people. They say your children are going to have their IQs lowered. They're going to get asthma. Uh, they'll die young, all this kind of stuff. Everyone's going to get cancer. Uh, I've been to, to a modern coal plant in Arkansas, and it, it's just unbelievably high-tech and clean. All the pollution is removed before it goes up the smokestack. And coal is a, a, a resource that we have such a surplus of Half the U.S. is is actually sitting on coal, coal seams. Right now, we have a situation because of the campaign against coal. Most of the coal has been replaced by natural gas plants. Uh, it's true we have a lot of natural gas and it's quite cheap, but it, it, we probably should be reserving that natural gas for higher uses and for export and use the coal that we have for for uh, energy or nuclear. And nuclear is another sad story. 
electricity was invented in the United States, and it was just totally destroyed by a, uh, a sneaky campaign uh, back in the 70s and 80s by the Sierra Club and these various environmental groups that just uh, cancer, cancer, cancer. And nuclear is a great, uh, great system, and it, ironically, it doesn't emit any CO2. So if they, you think they'd be in favor of it since they're so supposedly so worried about global warming. Yeah, and and you know, it's it's interesting because, you know, Democrats, you know, want to say that they believe in science so much and they believe in all these different things, and you know, they they want to say there's all these different genders. I mean, and, and you know, and they say, you know, they're such strong believers, and it's just it's everything. The contradictions are amazing, I tell you. And well, let's face it. It's it's absolutely disgraceful and disgusting how rich and how wealthy these organizations that are spewing uh, climate change have have profited uh, and, and how, how they've gained and how much just the wealth I mean the and just it's and all these people believing you know but let's face it the earth has been changing naturally by itself since it ever existed. There's nothing special that's happening that's doing anything uh, that, that, you know, that's causing anything different. I mean, what your thoughts? Yeah, if you look at the climate of the Earth uh, for the last hundred years, uh, it just doesn't, it's not consistent with the CO2 theory. From, yeah. from 1910 until uh, 1940, the Earth warmed very strongly. But it wasn't due to carbon dioxide because back in that time there was not enough carbon dioxide around. Uh, in fact, they don't know what caused that big warming from 1910 to 1940. There's, there's several different candidates. Now, after that, there was some cooling, and then there was another warming from 1975 to 2000. And what do these people come out? They say, oh, this is due to carbon dioxide. can't be anything else. They, they don't really know. The sun is a big candidate for changing the climate. There's a thing called the overturning circulation of the oceans, which has an influence in climate. There's these uh, decadal oscillations in the Atlantic Pacific Ocean that influence the climate. Uh, there are a lot of things that influence the climate. And uh, the CO2 theory is just not proven. Oh, oh yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's it's not. And, you know, we have we have all of these people and the fact that you mentioned you know the the pay the payroll that these people are on where you have all these scientists that are coming out and saying climate change is real climate change is real you guys have to be very scared and very cautious of it i mean just how frantic they act i mean it's ridiculous it absolutely is uh in, in the last 20 years uh there's been very little warming of the earth most of the warming has just been due to uh, periodic cycles in the Pacific. The, the warming that we've seen is about five times less than these climate models were predicting was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. And what, like, what are these organizations taking in a year? I mean, you know, these different, you know, it's Hollywood's involved. Uh, you know, you have all people, you even have people like Bill Gates. You have all these. Uh, billionaire elites. Uh, yeah, the, the Sierra Club. How do you explain over, that over. as well? I mean, a guy like Bill Gates, 
who's very smart, very brilliant, and all these other billionaires that are brilliant, do they actually believe in this, or are they just part of this organization that's paying them a fortune to tell, uh, you know, the sheep uh, what to believe and what to, you know, just what to uh, think? Yeah, I don't think that Gates is too bad. Uh, some of the worst ones is, are Michael Bloomberg, who's one of the richest yeah. people in the world. He's worth thirty-some billion dollars. Uh, I don't know if he really believes in it or if he's just positioning himself to run for president uh, in the Democratic Party. Uh, there's a number of billionaires who who are strong on this. Uh, basically, uh, you know, I I can't explain. I, I think. Just because you have a billion dollars doesn't prove you're smart, you know. Right. <laughs> no, I hear you. But what what are these? What are they paying? You know, these Hollywood elite, you know, actors and these different business owners to go around talking about it and these organizations. I mean, the amount of money they're collecting. Do you know what what the amount is? I mean, is it in the billions? Well, the Sierra Club is around a hundred million dollars a year. I think Greenpeace is around a billion. Um, they have a significant amount of money, but the really big money is uh, in, in building the wind farms and, and the solar farms yeah. and, and yeah. all the scientific research. There's, there's uh, tens of thousands of scientists working in this area. Right, and, and you know another thing I wanted to bring up, uh, another thing I wanted to bring up, which is really important. Um, wait, wait were, you, were, you saying, were you saying something? No, I, I just said that there are tens of thousands of scientists that are being paid by the government to, to work on this stuff. Yeah, and another thing that ties into this, the, the polar ice caps in Antarctica, we see, you know, the the, the crazy emotions from the left and the, and the hysteria and the, the over-exaggerations um, and the lies, quite frankly, because uh, if you talk to factual scientists, there's more ice there in ice caps than there ever has been before. Can you confirm that? Uh, I think the ice caps are, are, have been pretty stable for the last several thousand years. Uh, yeah. they're, they're, they're cyclical. Uh, for instance, Greenland uh, has been losing a small amount of ice. Uh, you know, the amount of green, ice Greenland has been losing, if it continued at that rate, it would take 15,000 years to, to lose the whole ice cap. Uh, but it, it probably gained a lot of ice in other times. Uh, it, you know, it, it's just there just isn't really significant global warming. It just it just isn't there. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it really isn't. I mean, it's 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 one of those things that, and the fact that it's it's became one of these mainstream headline daily issues. Uh, on the left, you know, it baffles me. Well, it, it does, you know, like we see in in, in uh, Paris, it, it does provide it, an it excuse goes to, to show raise real taxes. quick, real quick though, real quick. I want I want you to continue, but it just goes to show how the government can convince and brainwash anyone. But go ahead. Yeah, it, it provides a nice excuse to expand the government. It, it provides an excuse to raise taxes. I mean, all these guys want a carbon tax, which should be a new kind of tax. It would be very comprehensive. It would tax almost everything. Um, but I, I, I think uh, 
the government is is probably inept, you know. That they they uh the government will do any stupid thing if a a, a strongly motivated minority group uh starts pushing pushing for it. And so extreme environmentalists, you know, are probably less than 5% of the population. But these people have adopted a, a new religion that they, they really kind of worship nature and believe that mankind is a plague on the world. And uh, 5% of the voters is, is significant, especially since they're all Democrats. So the Democratic Party, the Democrat politicians generally all cater to them. And they they generally don't know what they're talking about. You know, I, I think... Uh, most of the people who talk on this subject really don't have any grasp of the science involved. Uh, and so there, it's easy to fall victim to this idea that 90, 98% of the scientists all agree or this kind of BS. It's complete BS. I've gone to many of these scientific conferences and talked to the scientists. You know, a lot of them, the first thing they do to me is, is they, when I want to talk to them about it, they say, well, our conversation is private, isn't it? Because they're scared to be outed, you know, as skeptical about global warming. Because it's very difficult. The only people who are skeptical about global warming openly are either very brave scientists or scientists who are in, have impregnable positions. They they have such good scientists that they can't be fired. Even even or, or they they at least have to have tenure. A lot of them are have are retired. Uh, and there's also a lot of kind of amateur scientists that uh, are skeptics, too. Uh, I, I think that the global warming thing is, is kind of running out of steam, and it's going to uh, die eventually, and we have to try to kill it. That's what I was going to get to next. I mean, what is it going to take, and when will it happen? If you, you know, what, how, when, why, uh, all the all those, you know, main questions of, you know, with this global warming, I mean, when does it end? And, uh, you know, when does it finally, uh, you know, like I said, jump the shark? I mean, and, and how? I mean, what, what's going to cause it to? I mean, more and more people waking up? I think people just get bored with it, to be honest with you. The the, um, the environmental movement uh, just needs periodic scares. They've been running scare tactics uh, for years. You know, they had acid rain and DDT and and numerous other campaigns. And after a while, when nothing really drastic materializes, people just get bored with the whole thing. I think one of the reasons they changed global warming to climate change wasn't just because the globe wasn't warming, but also because people were probably getting bored hearing about global warming. Uh, but uh, it's going to go out. You know, I, I think... <laughs> Uh, they're always testing new campaigns, new scare campaigns. The latest one I saw in 60 Minutes is uh, the ocean's getting filled up with plastic. I don't know if you saw that one. Uh, they they run pictures uh, saying that the whole ocean's getting filled with plastic, and of course it's nonsense. The ocean's yeah. way bigger than any amount of plastic we have. But uh, right, and they're yeah, and and now they're now that's. That's a new thing that all the all the leftist, um, uh, you know, different activists are, are speaking of. All the, the garbage in the ocean is becoming a huge problem, and all these animals are dying. Can you debunk that? Yeah, they aren't. I mean, uh, the polar bears was one of the campaigns they had, right? They said the polar bears would uh, all be, 
be die, die out because the ice would go away, the sea ice would go away, and they couldn't hunt for seals anymore. But uh, actually, the polar bear populations are increasing mainly because they've been restricting the hunting. Uh, polar bears are very, very uh, resourceful animals, and they're not going to uh, die out that easily. And I, I think it's kind of funny that uh, they they make the polar bears they try to make polar bears look cute uh, or cuddly. <laughs> <laughs> but polar bears would soon eat you. Is I mean, if, uh, the only thing a polar bear sees in a human is a prospective meal, right? They're they're absolutely fearless, and uh, every place in the Arctic where where men go, they have to be armed with rifles uh, so that it, to prevent polar bear attacks. Those things will sneak up on you and and jump you. Right. That's that's what they do. <laughs> Yeah, and don't you think don't you think the World Banks in the end are behind uh, climate change? Don't you think they're in bed with it? Don't you think they're strongly involved or or advising uh, to a certain degree? Well, the United Nations is certainly involved in it. They they uh, have this thing called the uh, Inter International Panel on Climate Change. It's a big organization. They hold meetings. They put out these big reports. And their whole theme, is, of course, is to to get money from the rich nations to the poor nations, um, right? And, and also to support a lot of people to go to conferences and and uh, fly around in jets and stuff like that. Yeah, so that's you know, this is all just you know, it, it all adds up. It all makes sense. It's all a scam, um, you know. Valerie, what? Your, you know, I want to get your thoughts, and then. Uh, Norman, I want to speak on your book before you go. Sure. So I'm interested about, um, you know, when I talk to environmentalists, I ask them, you know, what is the timeline for when we're all going to die? Um, Because I'm more interested in preventing Iran from getting the bomb. I think that is more likely to kill more people and destroy the environment than any kind of polar cap, and it's something that would that could actually happen in our lifetime. Um, do you what what? Why is it that they're? Well, I don't even know what the question is. What what could we say back to them? Like the, what I've just talked about, they don't they don't want to have anything to do with nuclear weapons. They don't want to have anything to do with you know uh, keeping our country safe with regard to security and defense. But yet, those things are going to be a lot worse for the environment than something that might happen in two or three thousand years. You can't really change their minds. Uh, the, the real dedicated environmentalists—it's—it's a, it's a religion, it's faith, and they're not susceptible to having their minds changed by logic. Uh, but there's a lot of people in the country who maybe have hurt, been propagandized so much they sort of believe in it, and those people are yeah. susceptible to having their minds changed. And I absolutely right. agree with but you about Iran. You can do. Well, if you could maybe send them to a re-education camp. <laughs> uh, if you want to be more scared, uh, you have to think about the the danger to our electrical grid. Um, the 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 electrical grid is susceptible EMP. to disaster. EMP exactly, and one way of making EMP is with a nuclear bomb. It doesn't require a big nuclear arsenal. It's just one bomb exploded over Kansas 200 miles up, uh, and that's the kind of attack that a, a minor state like uh, Iran might attempt. 
Exactly. So if they're really concerned about the environment, that would be something much more important to study and try to prevent than, you know, something that may happen in several thousand years or may or may not happen. They're they're not – we're not dealing with logical people here, with rational people. We're dealing with people who have a passion and they believe in it deeply and you're just not going to change their mind. We we hope we Mm -hmm. could change the mind of the politicians and the, the media to get a more objective view in this whole thing. Unfortunately, you know, sensationalism sells yeah. and common, um, you know, common sense explanations don't sell. <laughs> Very true. Um, so tell us, tell us about this book. Tell, tell everybody that doesn't know, um, you know, the, the premise and, and, you know, what it, what it entails, uh, please. Yeah, well, I I try to explain it in a way that's accessible to the educated reader uh, what's wrong with the wind and the solar. I I go through the economics of it, and uh, I I have a whole chapter on global warming, uh, sort of exposing all the fallacies and shenanigans of the global warming guys. I have a a chapter on the electrical grid and the danger of EMP, uh, and... uh, Lots of uh, photos of uh, of actual power plants and things like that. I think it's a it's a brief book. It's a short book. I think it's pretty easy to read, and uh, it's uh, available at Amazon for uh, five dollars in the electric in the e edition, the the um, internet edition, and uh, eight dollars in the paperback edition. And I have a website called uh, dumbenergy.com, which uh, would direct you to it and, and have some summaries of the book. Uh, so it's, uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, so it's been going pretty well. I've, I've sold a few thousand books, and uh, I've got a lot of favorable reviews of it. Uh, I, I'm not the first person to point these things out, by the way. There's there's many books written skeptical of uh, green energy and global warming. I just try to put it all together yeah. in, in a, a comprehensible version. Uh, and I have, especially, I think what I contributed was an explanation of the subsidies, all the hi- hidden and different subsidies. Excellent, excellent. And and you know, um, it really has been a pleasure having you on the show. And um, you know, everybody buy Norman Rogers' book. It's Dumb Energy: A Critique of Wind and Solar Energy. It debunks a lot of the propaganda. It explains a lot of great facts. Uh, it's very educational and uh, definitely brings you up to date with a lot of what's going on. Um, and Norman, uh, where everybody uh, can find you on social media, please please tell everyone. Dumbenergy.com. Perfect. Sounds good. And Norman, it's been a pleasure having you on. I want to thank you, uh, and we'll have you back on soon, sir. Have a great night. Thanks. All right. Norman Rogers, everybody. He's been he was a phenomenal guest, um, and so was Justin Torres. Um, we had uh, a great show tonight. I want to thank everyone. We got so many different topics addressed, and uh, uh, you know, t- you know, put put together and uh, established. And I'm very excited uh, with the way the show went tonight. Uh, highly productive. Uh, for the stuff I did not get to tonight. I will get to that tomorrow night. There were a few um, headlines that I forgot to uh, mention and also kind of ran out of time on. 
so I will get to that. As always, uh, you can visit um, thenextgenusa.com. Again, that's the thenextgenusa.com, our brand-new media site for uh, 24-7 breaking news uh, for all our interviews, all our shows, all our good stuff. We have so many different big names and notable people that are going to have their own TV and radio shows on there and are going to be having their own columns, and we keep adding to it, and there's so many amazing things. Um, also, please visit thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. Again, that's thedonaldjtrumpstore.com. Also find me um, all over social media, you know, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and please um, visit getyourappbuilt.com. Again, that's getyourappbuilt.com. Uh, Valerie Greenfeld, uh, please, where everybody can find your website and your book. Thank you, Lily. Um, my book is Backyard Jihad, backyardjihad.com, and the company is skyrysecurity.com. Excellent. And everybody, we're downloadable in over 19 countries now. We're listened to in, in, in 19 countries. We're on over 40 different platforms online. Uh, the audience just keeps growing daily, and I keep thanking all of you so much. It's been a true blessing. Um, we have, you know, lots to look forward to. Another great show tomorrow, and uh, very excited to be with you. Um, I want to thank all my sponsors, all my special guests tonight, all my audience, uh, and, and my and my co-hosts. Um, and we will uh, see you tomorrow night. Um, God bless everyone. Cheers.